I think one of the things you need to do is surround yourself with people who have got complementary skills uh, to yourself, and whether that's through consultants or whether it's partners in, in business or just help getting advice from friends. Welcome to another instalment of What Matters, a podcast series inspired by a book of the same name. It's a book that navigates one man's lifetime of business and investing. I'm your host, Adam Spencer, and as always, I'm joined by that man. He's the author of What Matters, chairman of the Sydney Swans, and the co-founder of Molus Australia, which now, of course, has been rebranded as MA Financial Group. Andrew Pridham. A lot of people took up different habits during lockdown. A lot of people around your vintage got on the uh, the stationary bike and started you know, doing that training where you can ride the Tour de France on your TV, that sort of stuff. Uh, I went and found myself a life-changingly awesome new girlfriend, and I'm just on this completely different trajectory in my life. What was it about you that made you think, a book on business management principles is, is, is what I need to be doing. Had you always had the idea of rattling around or? Well, I think everyone's got the idea of writing a book about business management principles. I mean, what, <laughs> what more exciting thing could you, could you do in life? And, uh, you know, whilst there's a pandemic wreaking havoc across the globe, what else would I do? And uh, now it was something that the academy is something I believe very strongly in because I think that... Uh, at, at the point in my career where I've been working now for 30, 35 years, to be able to give back and teach um, people as they come through in business and also uh, give some insights into what I've learned by being on the tools for, for many years, and I still am on the tools, I'm not, I'm not retiring, but I think that's really important and it's the best way I can help develop people within our business. It's interesting because you say, and it is a, you joke that everyone has a book about management principles in them, but it is said that everyone's got a book in them. Everyone's got one story in them, and the, the real skill of writers is if you can find the, the second story. But is it also true that everyone at some stage in their life has a great idea for a business? Do most people at some stage have a potential light bulb moment in their life? Um, I don't know. I mean, most of the people, and I've got many friends who have started and, and run their own businesses. Some have been successful, some haven't. I think that if you looked in your numbers, man, probably the majority of people don't have an idea to start a business because it's just something they, they wouldn't have the confidence um, or maybe capability to do, but certainly a lot a lot do. And, and I think that the, the key to starting a business is, is getting started. And that's probably- Which sounds where, simplistic, but is actually there's, there's a bit in that statement, isn't there? There's a lot in that statement because it's very easy to talk about things and, and we all know people who, who have great ideas and they're ideas people but they actually never put it into practice and they're, they're all talk and, and no action. And the hard thing is to get started. And once you get started, it's amazing what can be achieved. And that's really what, you know, one of my experiences in business has been in everything we do, certainly at, at Molus um, over the last 11 or 12 years, is that the businesses we've started, it's never easy. You know, you start the business, you've got to put a lot of work into it. Things don't go as planned. Um, it's not like a movie where you know you have your ups and downs and it has a happy ending. Sometimes things don't go well. Um, often they do. It takes a lot of planning. And I think that's the key. The advice I always give to anyone starting a business is, is get started. And I presume it could be, is a sort of a professional comes with your turf that you're the sort of person that people would go and ask, I've got an idea, what should I do? You would give this advice often. I presume what we're going to discuss in the next 30 minutes or so is not a locked and loaded. If you list, just listen to this 30 minutes, it's all you ever need. You can now go and start up a business without it. But the truths we're going to get to are things you consider pretty important. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, the book that I've written and my views on leadership and, and starting businesses and running businesses are my views, the things that have worked for me. 
there are things that haven't worked for me as well. Um, you know, I, I'm not a great reader of business books. I often buy them when I'm travelling overseas. That's something that used to happen, doesn't anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm typically the person who buys the book at uh, the, the bookshop at the airport and reads the first chapter and then goes to sleep and never looks at the book again. Mm. Uh, so I've got a very impressive bookcase at home and the books, are, if anyone wants to buy any of them, they're... Almost unused. Unused, <laughs> totally unused. So my experiences are really based on what I have seen and, and, uh, and done and it's not an academic outlook on, on business. It's very much practical and what, you know, what has worked for me and for others uh, and what hasn't worked well. You list in the book eight key steps to starting a business. We won't go through all of them, but the idea, you must have a great idea. What, what is it that makes an idea for a business great as opposed to you know, serviceable or possible? Well, I think if you're starting a business, one of the key things is that it's something that can actually be financially successful unless you're doing it for other reasons. If it's actually you want to become a millionaire, um, riches beyond belief, it has to be a great idea. And that means that you're providing a product or a service that people want to pay for. Um, And if if it's not something that people want to pay for, then it's probably not going to be a great idea. It's something where you have to have a genuine prospect of success in. And there's no point coming up with a great idea for something that is just beyond your capability. Like I might have a great idea to become a, a ruckman for the Sydney Swan, mm. and it wouldn't be a great idea because I, I wouldn't be able to do it. No. So um, it might be a great idea for somebody else. And it, it needs to be in an industry or a marketplace where the, there is a need for the product in the sense that there's a big enough marketplace. So there's, you could again, you could come up with a great idea for something um, but there's no money in it because you know people aren't going to buy it or there's no profit margin in it. So you, you need to think, consider all of those steps. You talk about the idea needing to have currency, but when you set up Molus in Australia, there's no shortage of investment banks at the time. Did you get any pushback to maybe, you know, not the best idea? Yeah, look, we did. I mean, a lot of people, um, there were media reports that it was, you know, impossible and who needs, the world doesn't need another investment bank. And uh, it couldn't be successful. And my attitude to that was was always, the world always needs another investment bank. You know, <laughs> When in history have we had too many? You know, Napoleon, if he could have had more investment banks back right, then, just he got would across have. The line. So I had great confidence that there wasn't a need for another investment bank, but there was a really, there was a need for a better investment bank. And, and we just felt that uh, we could do it differently and better. And we had a, a genuine vision as to what we could create. And we just started. But our, our business plan when we started was get good people together, get some money and do stuff. That was it. That was our business plan. And getting started was the hard bit, but we, we did it. We'll talk about people in a second. But one of the points you make in the book is two things you really need in place early on are a business plan and a financial model. I'll get your thoughts on the importance of both of those, but go back a step first. There must be a lot of people who can have a great business idea and spot a great business opportunity who aren't adept at coming up with business plans and financial models. How do you access that skill set for what those things are? Well, I think one of the things you, you need to do is surround yourself with people who have got complementary skills uh, to yourself, and whether that's th- you know, through consultants or whether it's partners in, in business or just help getting advice from friends. And often my friends come to me, uh, both of them, um, <laughs> and uh, and seek advice if they're looking at setting up a business, which is how they should go about it. And I think the important thing is you don't need to have um, detailed, you know, day-by-day business plans and lots of market research. And I think that's a mistake. A lot of people do that. They go and they they put a huge amount of effort into it. 
They have case studies. They read Sampling, things, surveying. They do everything. And they haven't got a clue what they're doing and they fail. Uh, and you've got other people who it just happens by accident. You know, their business plan might be in their head. doesn't necessarily need to be, be written. But I think it's important that you do have a plan of sort. It doesn't have to be 300 pages long, but a plan that you can at least refer to and say, this is why we're doing it and this is what we stand for and this is what we want to, want to achieve, and that you, you know, broadly stick to it. The financial model is really important, really, really important. And I think in my experience you know, with friends and, and even clients when they've started businesses, one of the mistakes they make is they don't have a financial model. Um, in our business, when we started it, uh, we lived by that model. We watched our cash day in, day out. We knew exactly how much cash we had left. We knew how much cash we needed. If we hired someone, we knew exactly what the implications were in terms of uh, our profitability. And I think if you fail to do that, you do run into trouble because most people who start businesses will tell you it takes longer to achieve what you think you're going to achieve. It's harder and it costs more. Do you tend to need access to more capital than you thought you would as a rule? Yes. When we started our business, for example, we had a set amount of capital. We had $10 million of cash and we had a capacity to get another $10 million of cash if we need it. We never had to, but we had the capability. And it typically does take longer and it does cost more. It's like renovating a house. It's exactly the same. It, it takes longer and it costs more. So you need to have enough um, slack in the sales, to use a sailing um, analogy, to weather the unexpected circumstances when things don't go as planned, when, when you go into something and it doesn't work. You talk about a plan B. Plan B. Throughout the book you sometimes say plan B, preferably plan C and D as well. Plan B, plan C, plan D. Uh, you've always got to have you know, lots of pivot strategies where when things don't go as planned. Because one thing you know, that you can be certain of in starting a business is there will be things that don't go as you expect. If people tell you everything went exactly as they expected, well, they're, they're lying to you because it doesn't happen that way. Um, you know, you have bad days, you have sleepless nights, you wake up and, and you think, you know, we're never going to resolve this. This is a big problem. But you do. You know, if you keep at it, you do. And, but you've got to have plan Bs, plan C. And certainly in, in my experience in, in our business, all of our businesses that we have, and we have many businesses at, at Molus, um, you, need, you need to be able to pivot and have thought that through and think, you know, it's like you playing chess. You need to have thought many moves ahead. When you talk about getting good people around you, I mean, that's almost a given. No one's going to say, try and get less than the best people, but there's only a finite pool of the best people. How do you get good people? No one's going to accept second best, but how, how, how do you get good people and how do you know what, what makes a good person in that sense? Yeah, well, it's, it's hard and, you know, along... The journey of any business you're going to make mistakes and you're going to get people who aren't good people and that can mean not not being a good person uh, can, can simply mean that they're not capable of doing the job that they're given um, and that could be intellectually not capable could be they they don't have the work ethic or it could be culturally they're not aligned and early on in a business one of the advantages i think you have is you can typically surround yourself with people you know because it's a small, typically a small number of people. And one of the things I talk about in the book is great businesses start small and grow. They don't start big. And we've made that mistake at times where you start big. If it doesn't go well, it goes spectacularly badly. Start small. So if you're starting small, you can surround yourself with people who you know, people who you might have a personal relationship with. You know that you've, you get on well with them. You're not going to be arguing. You've got similar outlooks on life. 
And the other thing I think is that you don't surround yourself with people who are clones of yourself. Mm. Um, and that's easy for me because you can only have so many clowns in an organisation. So um, I never found that difficult. But I think what, you know, you do need to have, uh, I'm an optimist. I like, you know, I like to look on the bright side of things. And it's important to have someone, for example, in your team who's not an optimist. Mm. They don't have to be a screaming pessimist. But they have to be the person who says, well, I'm not sure that's right. You know, yeah. is that really going to work? How much is really in the glass there? Yeah. Is that, you know, I'm not sure about that. And it just checks what you do and, you, and, and makes you think about it because people in life who are 100% sure of themselves and 100% sure what they're doing are right, you know, that's it's a certain, it's a pers- certain personality type, don't you think? <laughs> and it's, um, we, we could talk about football clubs, but <laughs> um, it's not something that, that I have. It's not an ability I have to be 100% confident that I'm right and getting the right people around you I think if they're culturally aligned and they're good people to me that's one of the most important things we've looked at and I always look at do I think the person's a good person because you you can't do good business with a bad person just a quick stop during today's conversation because I wanted to remind you if you're enjoying what you're hearing and would like to learn more you can head over to mafinancial.com slash what matters to access your copy of the what matters ebook a book that navigates a lifetime of business and investing. That website again, mafinancial.com slash whatmatters. Now, back to the conversation. But a point you make in the book that had never occurred to me was that at that early stage when large amounts of cash aren't necessarily lying around to pay people week by week, and you might think, okay, well, let's let's give you some equity in the business. Yeah. You have to be really careful how you go about that. I, I, I was surprised by the strength of the language with which you spoke about how badly that can go wrong. I think, Adam, it's one of the most common problems that people encounter when they've started a business. And I deal with this all the time in our businesses and I deal with it all the time when I'm helping friends. You know, I've got a friend at the moment, for example, um, who's you know, brilliant at what they do they've started a business and they've got an issue with one of his partners in the sense that they're not terrible, but they've got too much equity for what they're contributing to the business. And it means that it therefore becomes a real problem. And I see this over and over and over. It's not only a financial problem in the sense that it costs you money, it's very much an emotional problem and it becomes very draining because it's like a divorce if, if you've got issues with a partner where you need to take equity back. You say it can be as traumatic as a death in a family I, or I, going through a nasty divorce. I, I, could, I could name you two or three situations with people I'm involved in, clients and friends, where they're going through horrific experiences where they're trying to untangle um, an equity structure that hasn't been well thought through. How do you avoid the tangle in the first place? What are the hallmarks of an equity structure less likely to be threatened by that? Well, structure? I think that the, the key is you, you need to think a long way ahead and you have to think about what if. What if this person doesn't work out? You know, what if what if I hire you, you're my best friend, and I think there's no chance it won't work out because you're you're a great bloke. Great blokes, great you know, mates. You know, we, we play tennis Did together. This and that together. We do you know and then we get working. We've never really worked together, but we, you no. know, I've got no doubt. And we work together and I find out, you know, Adam's an idiot. You know? <laughs> And I would have gone for more just ethically slightly differently alignment. Let's yeah, say okay, I'm an idiot. Okay. Let's say I'm an idiot. Okay, not a complete idiot. No, no, no. Okay, mind you. Partial. The point is things change, people change, and you need to think ahead. And, and you have to have the capacity to adjust 
And one of the things is if you give equity to somebody and you don't have the capacity to either reduce it, increase it, or take it away in a way that can be done reasonably painlessly, then it can become something that really stops the business from ever succeeding because it's a millstone that you can't get rid of. Is that power more effectively exercised if the right to adjust its error sits in the hands of one person as opposed to was divested amongst multiple partners? I think there's there's different models. I mean, the, the, the model that I've, I guess, I've adopted is where I, I've looked at myself in the early years of our business as being a benevolent dictator. <laughs> um, which All is, dictators say that about themselves. We do. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I think I think it's whether it's one person or a small number of people. But I think it's if you are a benevolent dictator or if you have a small group of people who can control and have you know, enormous powers to grant equity or reduce people's equity or issue new equity to partners in a business, it's very important that that power is used in a fair way and it's not abused. And if people joining the business have confidence, and this is where reputation becomes very important, have confidence that your reputation is such that you're a fair person and, and you won't do the wrong thing, people will give you, cut you some slack. And my view has always been if somebody's joining and they want equity and they're not prepared to accept that they need to earn that equity, not just in a financial sense, but in a performance sense, and before it's, it becomes more permanent, if you like, then they're not probably not the right person culturally. Mm. And there's a lot of people like that that will come in, you know, they'll promise you the world and as we all know, they, they deliver an atlas. And if you've given them equity, you've got real problems. If you can't get it back, big mistake. I like the way you say they deliver an atlas too. That's nice and old school. These days they'd show you Google Maps. Google Maps, deliver you an iPad or something. But it's interesting because you talk also talk, another thing that struck me is that from, from the early days of structuring a business, you should have in the back of your mind, how am I gonna sell this? Yeah. How is this going to end? That would strike me as almost a weird fatalistic thing to have in your mind in the early right. honeymoon phase of yeah, setting it, up this, it, this lifelong ambition. It's counterintuitive. You know, it's, um, it's like the, you know, the prenup getting married and telling your future wife that we want a prenup. Here it is, just sign here, three copies. Um, I, I love you more than anything in the world, but when, when it says 15%, yeah. would you mind if we yeah, make Yeah, maybe it? it's 12 and a yeah. half. But the concept of thinking about how you're going to sell the business and exit the business. It's not, it's not a negative connotation. It's not saying, well, I'm just, I'm just building this to sell it, therefore I'm going to get out. Time frames could be five years, they could be 50 years. But I, I say this to people you know, constantly when someone comes to me and says, well, you know, I want to start a business um, or if we start a business in, within our business, one of the first questions I ask is, how are you going to sell it? Who's the buyer? What's your exit plan? Because if you don't have an exit plan when you start, you can, you can go down the wrong path very easily and find when you get to the end of that path and you want to exit that you either can't exit or um, the exit's not very palatable to you. And that could be as simple as uh, you build a business that's all about you. You, know, you call the business uh, Spencer Consulting and therefore it's going to be quite important when it's sold that there's someone called Spencer working mm. there. Um, you, know, you need to think through, is that a smart move? Is the business all about me? If I sell it, do I have to stay with the business for five years and I'm, and I'm gonna hate every second of that because it's all about me? Mm. Or is it important that as you grow the business, it's not all about you, it's, it's, it's called something else and it's, it's about a whole group of people and therefore, if you want to exit at some point, you can. And, and likewise, you might create a business, for example, 
that's so diversified that there's no buyer for it. Mm -hmm. Because there's no one that's going to want all of those bits. They're going to want this or they're going to want this. And you need to think about that because you might say, well, let's not do all these things because ultimately I can't sell all these other bits. I'll do this and this because they're the bits that someone would buy. On the topic of diversification, you walk through the example of your work at JP Morgan, and there's a couple of salient lessons that come out about that. Investing in the areas that you're strongest. You doubled down on something that was already perceived as a strength. Can you walk us through that example? I found that very interesting. Yeah, well, I deliberately not got many examples in the book of, of things in my career, and, and one of the reasons is I'm, I, I actually haven't got our legal department to go through the book yet. Right. So <laughs> defamation, I don't think you can defame a company. So um, no, JP Morgan's a great organisation. When I joined JP Morgan, I, they acquired my business and I had a boutique investment bank which solely did one thing, that was advise real estate companies. That's my background was real estate. And they bought the business essentially because they wanted me to join them and I said, well, I've got staff, I'm not, you know, if you want me to join, buy my business. Package? Package deal. Once in a lifetime opportunity, <laughs> low mileage. So they bought the business, and that was that was fine, and and you know went extremely well for them and and for me and and my team. But I was a real estate banker, and I got into that business, and it needed a lot of restructuring. It had a lot of issues, and once I'd done a lot of the restructuring of exiting people, which was difficult, mm. I thought, well, we need to we now need to grow. You can't just you can't cut your way to success. You've actually got to grow, and so I wanted to hire people. And first thing, it was hard to hire people because people didn't want to go and work there because they felt it wasn't going well. And so the first thing I did was say, well, let's, let's go and hire someone to work in real estate investment banking, which is what I did. And of course, there was outcries from the uh, management in Hong Kong saying, well, that's what we, we bought you for. And we've already got one of those. Yeah, it's what you. Are, are you lazy? You, you've, <laughs> you've pulled a con job on us. You've sold us your business in, in real estate investment banking, and now you want to go and hire a real estate investment banker. Uh, that's crazy. That's what you're doing. And I, and I, my point was, yeah, that is what I'm doing. But I'm also running the whole business. But the point is, we only have a couple of strong businesses within our overall business, and our strongest is the one you bought, is your real estate investment banking business. Let's make it stronger. Play to our forehand. Get really strong in that. Be number one. You know, unassailably number one. And then with the excess profits that we achieve in that area, we can then grow because we'll have. The revenue coming from that, which can help fund other growth, but also the halo effect of having a successful business can then allow you to grow in other areas. So we did that, and you know, very quickly we were number one in the market. And you do make a lot more money in any business if you're, you know, number one or two market player, as opposed to um, you know being number seven or eight, mm. where it's very difficult to make money unless you're a niche player. You talk about top two, top three in your field really is where a lot of the potential for profit resides? I think so. I think your pricing power, um, market share, being top one, two or three, critically important. Unless you're a niche player, which you can be, obviously, with a lot of disruptors in tech, you can you can be a small player. But very hard to compete as a number five player in anything, for example. Yeah, there's many, many examples of that. You talk about the network effect. What is the network effect and why do you believe in it so strongly? The network effect is the virtuous circle, as I'd like to call it, as opposed to a vicious circle, the virtuous circle of scale. An example that everyone knows, which I, I talk about in the book, it's a very simple example, is Google. Now, everyone knows what Google is, everyone uses Google, and they have the ultimate of, uh, benefit of the network effect. So that the point is that 
other search engines exist. There's Bing, if you remember. Bing. Yeah. Um, there's probably there's probably quite a few others. I think. But we'd struggle to name them, wouldn't we? We would. And News Corp, you know, bought some, and there's been others out there. But once Google had big enough market share, I think the market shares in the 90s or something of that order. Once their market share is so big and everyone uses them, the network effect is there's no point using anything else, particularly when it's a free service as a, as a consumer to use it. Um, and so if you can get that network effect in any of your businesses where you have real market power, you're, you're large, you've just got so many advantages. You can hire better staff, you've got more capital, you can do more research and development. It's very, very important in business to, to get to that point. I did an event a few years ago uh, for BlackBerry and they flew out the international head of BlackBerry and they were launching a new palm-held device and they'd been a bit slow to transition from their old structure. Of, it was still more a, a personal organiser device. To, you have to do that yeah. when you're doing talk about it. <laughs> yeah. More a personal organiser device with the, with the old thumb buttons. The palm pilot. Yes, yeah. than, than it was a smartphone and they were finally moving across and I got the impression the feedback on this thing they launched was, when it came to what it was offering, it was top of the charts. Incredible technology, probably ahead in many ways of where your Apple and Samsung were at. Too late, the network effect was working so heavily for those big guys that the best best product in the world at the time. Nokia is another example. There's, There's so many examples where someone comes up with the idea first. You don't have to be the first to come up with an idea to be successful, mm. and often the most successful businesses and products aren't the first idea. Mm. Um, and there's many, many examples of that. You look at Amazon with Alexa and how it's gone past. I mean, Apple seemed to have the jump in voice with Siri. Amazon's taken that. So you're going to have that, that occur multiple times. You know, Being a, um, a close follower is often better than being a pioneer in business. And if you can do things and execute them better, and you've got, particularly if you've got the network effect, and you've got a great business behind you, you can grab ideas and you've just got so much more capacity to make it successful. And you know, Apple, uh, the most valuable company in the world, has been a great example of that where you know, they've been able to essentially obliterate competitors by bringing out products that, that just are better. People, people want to use them. And what did the BlackBerry have? Uh, had a great keyboard. It wasn't a smartphone. It mm. was almost smart. It wasn't smart. It didn't have the internet on it. Um, but it was a great product. You could type on it. I loved it. I was much better on that than a, an <laughs> iPhone. It took me a long time to work out how to type on an iPhone. I still can't. Autocorrect drives me mad. Uh, I've lost many friends because of autocorrect. <laughs> but it's, it's just the ability to innovate and um, create products that people want to use that, that ultimately leads to, to success and the network effect helps that happen. But the temptation for businesses to diversify yeah. when they are into something is also something you fire a few warning shots across the bow of quoting in particular um, your old mate Jim Collins yep. and the hedgehog effect. Talk us through your, the, the, the warnings around diversification. Well, firstly, the hedgehog effect is, um, which Jim Collins talks about in, in his book, Good to Great, which I've read the first three pages of, <laughs> um, is, is very much the fox has many skills. It can hunt, it can run, it can jump, it's sly. Incredible sense of you know, smell. Smell, it can do all these smart Cunning. things. You know, I, now I live on a farm, I, I know fox mm. as well the sight of a rifle. The, the fox can do many things, but it has trouble catching a hedgehog. And the hedgehog can only do one thing well, and that is it can defend itself well. And the importance of playing to your forehand, sticking to your knitting, is critically important. And many people get into trouble where they decide to diversify and they're not ready to do it. It stretches their resources. 
one of the biggest resources you can stretch when you're diversifying business is actually your, your focus, it's your mind. Um, it's not just money. And you can see many successful companies, very successful companies, diversify even though they've got huge capital resources and they've got great brands, they can still fail. And Mercedes-Benz is one I, I talk about mm. when they bought out a ute. Now, I, I have a Hilux ute and I, I think I've got a, a Triton ute in my farm. Um, Hilux, Toyota Hilux dominates the market. Mercedes is a fantastic car, you know, premium brand. They decided to, to enter that market because it's a huge market. They stopped. They no longer sell them um, because diversification doesn't always mean you're going to win. And you're far better to stick to your knitting, I, I believe, and you don't want to diversify until you're really ready and you've really got your core business in an unassailable position where it's, it's really strong. Hope you're enjoying the What Matters podcast as much as we're enjoying bringing it to you. If you've listened across the series, you've picked up many great tips on how to be successful as a leader, as a business mind, and as a person. And I really hope you caught our conversation with the one and only Adam Goods, AFL Premiership player, Brownlow medalist, Australian of the Year, discussing culture and history. You know, I've often observed that leadership is something that can emerge over time. And Adam's just said, now, he was never captain of a team that he played for in um, Horsham and he ended up Australian of the Year, so that's not bad. A couple of Brownlows, a captain of a premiership team. Mm -hmm. Do you want to just continue on with it? <laughs> well, yeah, I thought you might have mentioned this in the um, intro, <laughs> but I'm glad you're I'm warming up, Goodsy. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> leadership takes time. It does, it does. So it just shows that, you know, Adam's set himself goals and now possibly one of the most important things he'll do in his life will be the Go Foundation. I think it, it could be. And that's something that will develop over time. It's only just started, I think. And it, it's important to recognise that you can't just say, oh, I've made it. You've got to say, well, okay, I've done that. Now I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to go better and better. That's episode three of What Matters, Culture and History. Make sure you check it out. Now, back to our conversation. When someone has set up a business, and let's say in the initial team, you know, they've got the basics right and it is working. The time frame that they look ahead, I get the impression is very challenging because the temptation is to look at the day-to-day -day and have that short-term time frame. You, you, you advocate thinking long-term while acting short-term. That sounds like a challenging balance. Can we unpack that a bit? Well, I think the, the key is you, you need to always focus on the long-term because the long-term is where value is created. Value is not created today. Value is created, you know, way out. And, but if you don't get the things right in the short term, you might not live to enjoy the long term. So in the day-to-day, -day, you can only really impact things you're doing in the short term. So I'm always focused on what we're doing day-to-day. -day. If I hire this person, is that gonna be, is that gonna be good? Now in the short term, a lot of decisions actually hurt your business. And I talk about, and I often talk about this in terms of investment banking, if you go and hire a team of people, they'll probably take 18 months before they start generating any revenue. That hurts your business for 18 months. You, you're losing money. But in the long term, if you don't invest in those sorts of decisions, you don't have a great business. And our business, I'd be the only employee if, if we didn't invest in, in hiring people. So always focus on the long term, but to survive, you've got to get the short term right. And that getting that balance right is very, very important and it's it's not easy. One thing that appealed to me is you, you, you get a bit geeky on me and go for the famous 1972 Stanford uh, psychology 
test that people might have seen. This is big again these days on YouTube. You get a group of kids and you, you bring them in and you put a plate in front of one of the kids with a lolly on it. You go, how are you going? Look, I'm just going outside for a second. I'll be back in five minutes. I'm just going out to get you a few more lollies. If you haven't touched that lolly in five minutes, you can have three. Cut out and then watching the videos of these kids in agony, not touching the lolly and hitting themselves on the head to distract themselves and all that sort of stuff. The, the delayed gratification yep. test. Why does that reach out to you? I've always liked the, the concept of the marshmallow test because I think it's a very true indicator of human behaviour in that um, you know, clearly the kids in, in the test, they can have one marshmallow. Um, if they don't eat it, they get another one. So it's a test of self-control and it's also a test of being able to focus on the longer term outcome. So in the short term, you know, they can eat it and they don't get the second Little one. sugar hit. But the kids that could, could sit down and do this, and they, you know, <laughs> where's that marshmallow? And, you know, they look at it and they might even lick it and they wouldn't eat it. Um, it's pre-COVID. And <laughs> what the study found is it's both self-control and it's also being able to, to, to balance the long-term benefits of self-control. And what they found in that test, incidentally, was that the kids they, they reviewed later in life and those that were actually waited to get the second marshmallow had better outcomes later in life. Mm. I think that's, that's pretty, pretty... SAT scores and all sorts of stuff. Yep, income. and So it demonstrates that people that have self-control and it can actually prepare themselves for the longer term and not just try and get gratification today. Might be someone joining the workforce and being prepared to work for less early on in their career because they're doing what they love and what they think has greater potential than saying, no, I just want to get, I want to be chief executive today. I want to get maximum salary today. If I don't get that, I'm not taking the job. So in business, when you're dealing with other people, competitors or people you're trying to have a deal with or something like that, is it important to understand how their motivations are aligned in particular around time, because you might be taking a long-term view, but this person might be in a position where they're after a very short-term return, for example. Well, it's, it's a challenge when you're a public company because a lot of shareholders, they not only want to get the two marshmallows, they want the whole pack and they want it now. Yeah. Um, and if you're the one who has to control the supply of marshmallows, uh, to keep going with a mushy analogy, uh, you need to be really stick stick to your game and say, no, this is what we're doing and this is why we're doing it. And I think one of the great challenges, you know, I find is explaining to people in a clear and concise way how we, in what we do, for example, are making short-term decisions which are going to hurt in the short term, um, but they're for the long-term benefit. And if you, if, you, if you can wait and you're patient, you'll get great rewards in the long term. And it's, you know, an analogy I, I could use Coming back to my farming activities, if I plant a tree, I'll go and water that tree. I'm not measuring it every 15 minutes, you know, to see how much it's grown. I, you know, but if you come back in 12 months, it's grown. And that's, that, that's the thing you've got to explain to people. That's what you're trying to do. And I think a lot of competitors that you know, I've seen and, and businesses generally, you can see the mistakes they're making as they're making it because they're trying to do things too quickly. It's all about, you know, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. You know, they're promising this, we're going to do but the fundamentals aren't in place, the foundations aren't there. They're not investing for growth, they're just hoping for it. One of the things that you believe can help people guide themselves in those, those decisions and, and, and charting that course is an understanding of the brand of the organisation. Let's dig into that a little bit. The concept on brand was something I was 
fascinated with and remain fascinated with and it's something we're constantly talking about in our business and we have different brands we operate under and it, it's always a, an interesting discussion. Are you better to have a single brand, multiple brands? What are the dynamics around it? But the, the core point with brands that I find interesting, it's and a lot of people think about brands as logos. You know, it's a name or a logo. The Nike swoosh. The swoosh. Um, it's not about the logo. The logo's important. You know, logos change over time. We've talked about Apple. Their logos change you know, many times over the years. Logos are, are modernised. They're updated based on fashions. And, but what what shouldn't change too much is what your brand stands for. And it's, it's, it's about your culture and, and is your brand premium? Is it discount? Is it about... You know, what do you stand for? And, and one of the, it was a bit of a light bulb moment for me after, actually, I did read a book um, called uh, What Great Brands Do. And what this book was all about was working out what your brand is, brand being your um, behaviours, and then every decision you make, your brand behaviours can be a compass for you as to as what you should do. And we've found that incredibly useful over time when, when we're debating and really thinking about directions we might take, decisions we might make, things we might do, and then coming back to our brand and saying, what do we stand for? What is our brand? Is that consistent with what our brand is? And if it's not, it is your compass because you can very quickly say, well, it might be a great idea, but it's totally inconsistent with our brand, so we're not doing it. But actually understanding the purpose of your business is sometimes more complicated than it might sound because Denise... Leon goes into this in, in what great brands do. She talks about the much celebrated Kodak yes. case study. And this has been analysed by a lot of people trying to understand brand and culture and, and purpose. Summarise for us the Kodak case study and what do you take from it? Well, the, the Kodak case study, I think, which most people will be broadly aware, was that uh, Kodak's business was cameras and film. And they uh, dominated the global market in film. And they actually invented the digital camera. And they decided that that would be something that could be quite damaging to film. <laughs> um, clearly, they were right. Um, now, rather than saying, well, what is our brand? Is our brand that we have film? That's just a mechanism to which mm. th their brand was actually about. Um, what was their, their motto? It was um, the Kodak moment. The Kodak Capturing moment. Capturing the so, Kodak moment. So it was about experience. Yeah, you saw the brand was emotional, not technical. I yes. like to say it was. It wasn't in the films business, it was in the memories business. It was in the memories the business, moments business. Capturing moments, capturing emotions. And that's what their business was. And they knew that digital photography was going to kill the film business. They knew it. And what did they do? They, they didn't pivot appropriately because they thought, well, we'll just bury that. No one, mm. will, no one will find that about digital technology. And no one will find out about one of the great technological revolutions yeah, of all time. Yeah. I mean, the iPhone's impossible, won't happen. You know, clearly... That was a, a, a massive misstep which led to their, their bankruptcy, of course. And, you know, what could they have done differently? Well, maybe they couldn't have done anything differently. Maybe they were just doomed. But clearly, if they could have adapted and gone into digital in, in, a, in a very meaningful way and, and really captured that and owned it, maybe they had an opportunity to do it. We'll never know. Um, but it's understanding what your brand is. It's not necessarily how you do things or what you do, but it's why you do things, What why consumers love your product or service. If you're a single organisation doing a single thing, I guess understanding brand and having that as your guiding principle 
is a different challenge to if, as you explained with Molus, it is a single organization, but as many sub businesses operating in quite different areas, quite different purposes in some ways, how do you unify under a brand or do these different branches of Molus have significantly different brands? Well, I think they have, many of them have different brands. I mean, we're, you know, we're in things as diverse as um, obviously our, our investment banking advisory business, um, which is about providing ideas and services and raising capital for people, stockbroking, through to we own shopping centres, pubs. Uh, we're an all, all manner of credit. We're, we're a big lender to consumers and to business. So they're very different businesses, do very different things. They each may have different brands. We operate under many brands. Um, and I think brand and culture are interchangeable in many ways. And I think there's certain, what I would call, base level cultural standards or brand standards that we certainly believe we have and, and, and try to adhere to. And there's things such as being fair, doing the right thing, being inclusive, all those sorts of things, that just being a good person and a good company and being responsible. So they, that's base level. And I think all of your businesses have to have that base level and has to be consistent. But you know, clearly our pub business, for example, our pubs are about entertainment and people having a good time. Mm. Um, you know, we own the Byron Bay Hotel, the Beach Hotel in Byron Bay, where you know it's it's absolutely pumping at the moment. People are going there; they want to get away from COVID. They mm. want to go in the warm weather, have a great time. Now, clearly, Chris Hemsworth pulling schooners for them behind them in the front bar. Yeah, that's a fun fun place. And I can tell you, if if you're working with our restructuring team in investment banking. You know, that's not a fun place sometimes. <laughs> uh, they're fun guys, but it's not a fun place. So yeah. the culture and the brand of those businesses are very different. So baseline the same, what you stand for, but each of the businesses have their own subcultures. And I think you can do that. And what we try to do to make that work is to ensure that we give each of the businesses enough rope, if you like, or the capacity to develop their own subcultures and subbrands and really own them and grow them and not be constrained. Because if, if you try to make everyone constrained to the same values and same exact same brand, mm. you couldn't have a diverse business. But we do hear of cases in the corporate world where one small section of a big diverse organisation goes a bit rogue. Goes rogue, yeah. In, in the worst cases, ends up dragging those yeah. businesses Often down. Does. Yeah, now, you, you get the impression someone didn't just come in one day to a perfectly functioning arm of that business and go, I know... Let's start, uh, let's start charging excessive fees to people who are dead. Great idea. That'll get us over the line. How does it get to the point where it, an organisation that is aligned under a set of values or a brand can have a small segment go rogue? Well, I think if you've got the, the base level cultural and brand issues right and you actually adhere to them, it's easy to say, you know, we won't do bad things and we're, we're, we're fair and we're honest. And easy to say. You have to live it. And that means when someone's not honest someone's not fair, then senior management has to deal with that. And so each of the businesses, whilst they, you know, I think we, we give them the, the capacity to go and have their subcultures and brands and do what they think is necessary for their business to, to maximise that business, that if they do stray, there has to be guardrails, if you like, for each of them. And if they do stray, you actually take action. You don't just talk about it, you do something about it. And that's, you know, one thing, that that's the role of the board, that's the role of management to ensure that happens. We've covered a lot of territory in this episode of What Matters. I'm wanting closing to ask you a question. One thing I love about the book, it often starts a chapter with with an icon of business and, and a quote that the theme of that chapter is built around. In this chat, we've already 
covered issues discussed by Richard Branson, Steve Jobs, Jack Welsh, icons. You're going to hear quoted in a lot of these business books that you don't read. Yeah. Um, the, the core message you had about investing in areas where you're strongest is captured under the quote, don't try and be anyone else. Don't try and emulate what someone else is doing. Play to your strengths. That's from Angela Johnson, not as an icon of American business as much as an American actress, comedian, former NFL cheerleader. When did you become familiar with Angela's work? Well, this brings us back to Google, I suspect. <laughs> I, it's not easy finding quotes that um, necessarily fit neatly into the points you're trying to make. But playing to your forehand, um, being obviously a former champion junior tennis player, is something I only had a forehand, so I had to play to it. <laughs> but no, it's pretty important that you, you do play to your forehand. And, you know, we've all got our strengths, we've all got our weaknesses. And if you can play to your strengths, amazing. It's just amazing how easy things can be sometimes. You end up becoming either an icon of Australian business or an NFL cheerleader. Or both. Who knows? Who knows? Wonderful chatting with you, Andrew. Thanks so much for discussing how to start and build a successful business. It's been great. Thank you for joining today's episode of What Matters. And don't forget, head over to mafinancial.com slash whatmatters to download your copy of the ebook. Be sure to subscribe to What Matters, and I'll see you next time to talk about people management and leadership. Sure, you know business. Sure, you know the numbers. But do you know people? Andrew's insights on people and leadership next time on What Matters. What Matters.